Hello everyone, and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. Wow, what an episode we have for you this week. The incredible Michael Sheen joined us today. Where does one start trying to sum up Michael's amazing career? He was born in Patalbot in 1969. He trained as an actor at RADA and after graduating had a meteoric rise to success as a stage actor. His credits include Romeo and Juliet at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, Moonlight by Harold Pinter at the Almeida, Look Back in Anger, Homecoming and Ends of the Earth at the National Theatre, Frost Nixon and Caligula at the Domar Warehouse, Amadeus in the West End, Henry V at the RSC, Hamlet at the Young Vic and The Passion for National Theatre Wales. His screen credits are just as impressive. For TV, they include 30 Rock, Good Omens, Quiz and Masters of Sex. His film work includes Underworld, Laws of Attraction, Kingdom of Heaven, The Queen, Blood Diamond, Frost Nixon, Twilight, The Damned United, Midnight in Paris, Far From the Madding Crowd and Dr. Doolittle. And all of these only scratch the surface of his prolific career and incredible amount of acclamation and awards. Plus, he's one of the nicest, most passionate and intelligent people I've ever had the pleasure to talk to. I'm basically fanboying, but he was such a brilliant guest. Michael's play crush was Hamlet by William Shakespeare. Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, to give it its full title, is a tragedy written by Shakespeare sometime between 1599 and 1601. It's his longest play with 30,557 words. Set in Denmark, the play depicts Prince Hamlet and his revenge against his uncle Claudius, who has murdered Hamlet's father in order to seize his throne and marry Hamlet's mother. Now, as Michael goes on to describe in this episode, that description in no way captures the complexity and brilliance of this extraordinary play. Although Hamlet is probably the most famous play ever written, and one of the most performed ever, the way Michael talks about it makes it sound like a piece of new writing that was only turned in yesterday. Before we get started, I just want to say another huge thank you to everyone supporting Sherman Theatre and the Old Vic. Theatre is facing an existential crisis right now, like so much of the world. And once it's gone, theatre will be gone forever. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported us so far. And if you enjoy this episode and would like to make a donation, no matter how big or small, you can go to the Old Vic's website to support them. Or to support Sherman Theatre, you can simply text SHERMAN5 to 70450 to donate £5. That's Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N, and the number 5 to 70450. Or just visit our website. Thank you so much. Now, without further ado, here is Michael Sheen with Hamlet. Uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Play Crush have the absolutely brilliant Michael Sheen with us today. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Yes, not too bad. Uh, not too bad. Um, enjoying the good weather. Got a bit bit miserable last week, which was making me feel a bit funky. Yeah, I know. We've had... And it's extraordinary, isn't it, that during we, as we speak, I don't know when people will be listening to this, we're speaking under <laughs> lockdown conditioners. The conditions. Yes. Um, and... Uh, I mean, one of the extraordinary things has been, at least here in Wales, the weather has been, for the most part, extraordinary. And <laughs> I can imagine if this had happened like over the Christmas period where it was dark and cold and wet and people couldn't, you know, see each other at Christmas and that, you know, just horrendous. Um, but having the sun has been uh, has been really extraordinary. But it means that we miss it even more now because the weather has been bad the last few days. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now I just feel very spoiled. <laughs> it's a total game changer. I've noticed how much more miserable I get when the mm. rain starts. Yeah. Um, and I'm new to Wales. I've only been living here a year. Is this, can I expect this every summer? Is this a normal Welsh summer, blazing sunshine from about April onwards? Well, I've noticed that um, Easter time has become sort of blazing sunshine in Wales. Um, I noticed this first. I believe I was the person who started it by, by when I did uh, the Passion <laughs> of Patalpa in 2011 at Easter time. It was the hottest Easter on record, I believe. Right? <laughs> and ever since then, it sort of stayed like that. So we have blazing hot Easters, but um, spring. I, I, so because of lockdown, and I've, I've living in the house I'm living in now in Wales, I've only been in for just over a year. Um, so I'm getting used to this house, and it has this lovely garden. 
and it backs onto just sort of the Brecon beacons, really. So there's just, I mean, it's gorgeous. Um, and uh, and being here in lockdown over spring has meant that I've just uh, noticed what spring is really for the first time. I mean, you know, a lot of people have talked about spring over the years, and I kind of got it on paper, but I didn't really get it. And now I get it. Spring is spring is top. Love spring. Spring is now my bag. Spring is where it's happening. Yeah, it's great. I love that we've got you to thank as well for summer and spring now. Oh, it's fine. What, it's fine. You don't gift. have to thank me. You don't have to thank me. Just just think of me whenever it happens. <laughs> just, just associate me with the sun, and that's all I yeah. ask for. Yeah, I mean, I always have, but I'll make a yeah. more conscious effort now, of course. Good, thank and, you. And, I mean, apart from... You know, that, I mean, that connection to nature, amazing. I'm incredibly jealous of that. But Mm. I mean, how have you found the last few months? Um, I mean, yeah, how's it been going? Well, I mean, it's like talking about the play that we're going to talk about. Where do you start? It's such an an extraordinary experience to be, you know, it's rare that you're like, oh, we're living in history. This is history (laughs) happening right here. But on a very um, microscopic level, just personally for me, Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, it's, it's just, uh, reinforced how, uh, how unequal our society is. I, mm. I'm aware that I have immense privilege and, and good fortune. Um, and, um, you know, that it is a lot, a lot easier for me than, than it is for, for most people. Um, uh, and, and so on the one hand, I've I've enjoyed certain elements of this, even though it's in the context of huge suffering and and difficulty and challenge for people. Um, but you know, I've, we've got a little baby who's now nine months old, but started lockdown, you know, <laughs> not very old at all. Um, and and having the time, you know, to just be here in the house with her um, has been very special. That has been incredible, and and like I say, to be to be able to just be so focused on her and and our family life and our home life and to to watch just what's happening outside through spring um those elements of it have been incredibly incredibly special and um uh, and and who knows if I'll ever have that experience again um but also to be aware of of what's going on around us in the community to see people um, helping each other and, and stepping up and uh, uh, as well as the challenges that people have had that's uh, that's a very powerful experience as well yeah I've been blown away um, here I think more so I've lived in London for 12 years and then and then just moved um, to Cardiff last year but I've been blown right. away by the community spirit during this mm. time by the way neighbors have looked after each other people have been dropping shopping off to like the vulnerable or people who can't go out like uh, as you say, the context is kind of horrendous, but there's these little moments I found mm. just really moving and really amazing. To yeah, see. and it's funny because I was uh, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts about the caretaker, and George on that was talking about how you know he felt that the play was about love, and it reminded me of um, I I had the great fortune to to be able to work with Harold Pinter. Um, oh, wow. on on his play Moonlight, um, which was the first full length play he wrote after sort of thirty years away, um, with the great Ian Holm, who, as again as we record, only died a few days ago, and that, that was um, uh, just such a loss. Um, he was uh, an extraordinary actor and just such a lovely, lovely man. Um, but that uh, having worked with Harold. Um, uh, it made me realize, and I, I also did the homecoming at the National Theatre, which Harold wasn't directly involved with, but was around for. Um, and it reminded me that listening to George talk about it, it reminded me that I, it, the same thing had struck me when I was doing those plays is that for all of the, the sort of the coldness and the and the, um, the, the the frightening, sinister kind of undertones of, of Harold's plays, um, that they are about love because they are you, what you become aware of is what is absent, <laughs> um, and you become aware of it, overwhelmingly aware of it because of its absence. You find yourself yearning for something because it is so uh, um, not uh, apparent in the in the environment that you're in. <clears throat> and so the plays really are; those plays really are about love because it's it's 
they're, everyone is just desperate for it. Um, and and I think in in the in this lockdown, it has made us so aware of what is absent, what we are unable to do anymore, what we've you know what what we obviously take for granted most of the time. I mean, something as simple as when I go, you know, I take my my sister and I um, take it in turns to do the the weekly shop for my mum dad. Um, and when I go to take the shopping there, you know, just not, you know, I can see my mum desperate to give me a hug um, mm. and, and we, we can't, you know, and um, something as simple as that, that just, you just feel the absence of, uh, you know, and there's, there's so much of that, obviously, um, that's just one example, but, um, but it did, it reminded me of, uh, of, of, of that, of the, of the Pinter plays. And I mean, I mean, yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, as I said on that podcast, and I say again now, you and George, are the only people I've ever heard talk about Pinter's plays be about love. Mm. Um, but as soon as you talk about it in that context and in that way, to me, it's like, come on, Joe, how did you not see that? Like, that's exactly yeah. what those plays are about and, and how they resonate for today. Well, it's funny because I remember when I did um, The Homecoming. So my my mum and dad, you know, um, born and brought up in Portalbert in South Wales, um, working class family. Um, you know, my, my mum's dad was a miner. My mum's mum was a cleaner. Um, and when my mum and dad come and see plays that I was in, it's not so much now, but, you know, for many, many years, they, they sort of were the attitude, well, you know, we're not used to this kind of thing, but, you know, <laughs> we're here to support you. I don't, we don't pretend to, to know anything about Shakespeare or, you know. So when they came to see... Um, the homecoming it was so interesting because I thought right oh you know they're just not I don't know what they're going to make of this you know I mean you know the great <laughs> minds of our time have difficulty with Pinter um, and uh, and so they came to see it and I and afterwards I thought you know what my mum what my mum will say or my dad will say if they haven't really enjoyed something they'll say um, oh it was interesting different <laughs> different they're so lovely and supportive you know they'll never say anything negative but they'll say it was different so I was expecting a, a rousing chorus of different um, and after watching the homecoming my mum said well that's the house I grew up in wow and I that would I mean I even now that gives me slightly you know goosebumps not just yeah. because oh my god to grow up in that house and, and that's not to say that her family were like that but she just got it I mean she abs she had no sense of this is inaccessible or, you know, difficult to get. Like she just got it. And, um, and that, that has always remained with me. I mean, that taught me a lesson about all kinds of things, but um, about assumptions and all sorts of mm. stuff, but that was an amazing thing. And Harold was, Harold was an extraordinary character. You know, he, he, I always remember when we were, we did the read through of the homecoming at the, at the rehearsal room, sort of, you know, which is beneath the ground at the national and uh, and he was sitting there, and the, and you could hear the tubes, you know, the tube trains going past, rumbling in, through the room, because they were so close to where we were underground. <laughs> and um, at one point, he said, "Can we do something about those fucking trains?" <laughs> and and the stage manager was like, "Well, that's that's the that's the underground. Those are the tubes, Harold. Yeah, can we call someone?" We bloody call someone, and he was, you know, sort of serious. I mean, obviously, he knew he couldn't stop the trains, but that was that was very much like Harold that he was quite scary, and and you know, he could be, you know, you you really had your wits about you when you were around him, but he was also just hilarious. He was so funny, and, and um, yeah, you know, for a, a, clearly a man who had who had a lot of coverings and layers you know there but um but yeah definitely his plays are, are very much about love i think yeah and 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 i think as you connected to just completely about now it's mm. i mean it's what always blows me away about his plays a bit like um as as the play that we're going to go and talk about today it, it, mm. like however you look at them they seem to talk to you now and here here and now yeah like in, well harold angle. harold had died quite um close to the time where i did uh, where I played Hamlet, he he was for Ian Rickson and myself, Ian who directed it. Harold was a towering figure, and um, and his death did very much cast a shadow across our production. Ultimately, um, very much like old Hamlet casts a shadow across <laughs> the play. Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, you know, would you mind talking a bit more about Harold and that experience of working with him? Harold was just an extraordinary character. 
so many stories about him. I, just I remember Anna Massey, who was um, playing. Uh, it was uh, Douglas Hodge, myself, Claire Skinner, Ian Holm, Anna Massey, um, uh, Edward de Souza, uh, 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 and um, and I remember Anna Massey in rehearsals saying to Harold, uh, it was directed by David Laveau, and Harold was there every day. Um, but David was directing it. And uh, so we could ask Harold things if we wanted. <laughs> and I remember in rehearsals one day, Anna said, Harold, um, where, where have I come from when I walk on at the, into the room at this point? Where have I come from? And there was a long pause, obviously. <laughs> um, Harold Pinter, trademark. Um, uh, and he said, well, the wings. <laughs> which is a sort of, which sort of goes with the story that, that, that I think you and George told about um, none of your bloody business. When people yes. said, you know, what's my motivation or whatever. Um, where does this come from? Um, it's a similar, a much nicer one that he, you know, <laughs> yeah. well, from the wings. Um, and I always remember that. That was wonderful. And um Oh, and just so so many so many wonderful things about him. I mean, one of the things I'll all, I'll never forget is um, well, two things. <laughs> one, I went to see him doing the Hot House. Uh, you know, is uh, he was acting in it, um, and I and I went backstage to see him afterwards, and I walked down you know the corridors of the theatre and uh, and get to this door that's his dressing room. Knock on the door, come in. I open the door, and he's standing right at the back of his dressing room. It's quite a big dressing room. He's standing there in a pair of really quite gaudy wife fronts. And that's it. And he's standing looking at me, and I've just opened the door, and I've suddenly thought, ooh, maybe I... Did he say come in? Maybe I shouldn't have come in. And I, I just froze there in the doorway, and he's standing right at the back, just absolutely facing it out, just looking at me. And there was a massive, long pinter pause where I thought, I don't know what is going to... Is he going to roar at me? Is he going to say, get the fuck out? Or I don't, I don't know what was going on. And he just stared at me for ages. And I sort of stood my ground. And then eventually he went, Michael, come in. And then we had a <laughs> lovely time. And it was lovely. I, I'll never forget that moment of him and his wife, friends. Um, but also, the other thing that I will never forget as well is um, uh, a, a few years later, I did uh, uh, Caligula at the Domma. And um, and I had a I had a note one day saying um, from Harold saying coming to see uh, the production uh, Antonio and I would be coming to see the production on Friday would love to have dinner with you afterwards we'll we'll meet you at the at the Ivy afterwards <laughs> oh, oh you know dinner with Harold Pinter and Antonio Fraser at the <laughs> Ivy amazing and I had to be up really early in the morning because I was filming uh, a thing called the the deal that I did where I played Tony Blair that Stephen Frears was directing. I was filming that in the days and then performing Caligula in the night. So I was exhausted and it was like full on, really intense period of time for me. And so I used to do the play and then immediately go home and try and go to sleep and then be up at like five the next morning to go off and film. And then I'd finish filming and then they'd put me on the back of a motorbike and I'd be sped across London to the, the Donmar <laughs> and then perform Caligula. I was just a performing monkey at the time. And... Um, <laughs> But, it, but you know, I'm not going to miss the chance to go and have dinner with Harold. Although I was terrified because I thought if he doesn't like it, oh, I mean, he doesn't oh, mince God. his words, you know. So it was sort of, it was quite scary. But anyway, I did the performance and then went off to, to the IV afterwards. And when I got there, he and Antonio were in the, clearly in the middle of an argument. <laughs> and um, and it was obviously a fairly tempestuous relation. Or at least, you know, they had no qualms about arguing and about things. And anyway, I sat down and uh, there was a frosty silence. And Harold said, uh, Antonio has just accused me of being like Caligula. <laughs> and, uh, which was not the, not the greatest start. But never, but clearly, you know, it was, it, they were just sort of joking around, really. And then we had this meal and, and they had both loved it. And Harold said, one of the things that I will never, ever forget. He said many things at that meal. But the one thing that really moved me so much. And I'll, I'll just preface this by saying, what made me become an actor in the first place? One of the, the major things that inspired me to become an actor was, um, and I'm not, I'm not sure I've heard any other actors say this. It was actually a critic <laughs> that got me uh, into being, uh, it was reading Kenneth Tynan's uh. writings on theater and his reviews, and particularly his reviews of, uh, of Olivier performances. Um, things like, you know, is Richard III and Othello and, uh, 
you know, uh, Oedipus and, uh, you know, these extraordinary performances. And it just really fired my imagination. I was like, I don't know, 13, living in Patalbot, um, and just reading this stuff. And it just absolutely blew my mind reading this stuff and imagining these performances. In a way, probably better. I didn't actually see the performances. That the, the, the Tynan cr- made theatre criticism an art form in itself. Just mm. It was extraordinary, um, and and one of the things I always remembered was his description of of uh, Olivier as Oedipus, and uh, and and just this animalistic quality, and the kind of the ability to dominate the room, essentially, you know, as an actor, and and his physicality, and his daring, and his bravado, and all this kind of stuff, just amazing. So I'm sitting there with Harold, and at one point he said to me, "You know, Michael, I, I, I when I was watching you." It reminded me of watching Olivier as Oedipus. And I thought, A, oh my God, he was there. He watched that performance of Olivier. And he is somehow, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying that he was saying it was like as good as that, but he said that there was like a quality to it that was the same thing in dominating the room and this sort of animalistic thing. And I mean, but, that's, you know, that's that, stuff of dreams though, isn't oh, it, to hear that? I mean, yeah, something came full circle for me there. That was amazing. And, and I've, you know, I, I will never, ever forget it. Um, and, and it was an incredibly generous thing to say. Um, and, you know, and knowing that he was a man who did not bullshit, <laughs> that was, uh, that really <laughs> meant a lot to me. Yeah. God, yeah. wow. I yeah. mean, what, what an experience. Um, mm. and I mean, so let's rewind for a bit then, if that's all right. Also, just cause mm. you, you, you talked there about your, your younger self and growing up in Patalbot and, um, reading those those reviews, mm. maybe we could just sort of track back to where this all started for you and just have a little walk through, you know, what took you to that point. Because, I mean, you know, even even if the zenith of your career was playing Caligula at the Donmar um, with um, Harold Pinter saying you're like Larry Olivier, you'd go, okay, this guy's achieved. Uh, but, you know, that was only, you know, that was just the beginning for you, really. So, be great maybe to go back and hear and talk a little bit about that journey yeah well um so I, I an extraordinary kind of um coming together of of lots of different um circumstances really now you know as I look back now and I've become progressively more and more aware of of what it was that led me to being able to have the opportunities I've had one thing is the place I come from from Port Albert. um so it's a place that it's a you know it's a steel town. It was the most well known thing about Patel, but was that it, it had at one time the largest steelworks in Europe, um, uh, and a lot of the town grew up around that. So the Sandfields estate, council estate, grew up to house the workers within the steelworks, and that is sort of the heart of Patalba in many ways. Mm. Um, but it's this town that extraordinarily has also at the same time had a history for for producing actors. So Richard Burton, you know, is probably the most famous son of Patalbert. Um came from Ponte de Ven. Um Anthony Hopkins. So so yeah, so the town itself, you know, this this very, you know, you know, working class like, you know, the mean streets of Patalbert. It was it was a tough place to grow up. But extraordinarily having this tradition of of actors and acting. Um and by the time I was uh a, a youngster in school, um, you had this, this, this uh, culture within the town that that respected theatre and acting. You know, it, mm. it, you would you would normally think that it would be something that would be kind of seen as being, you know, not really a man's job or anything like that. But because Burton and Hopkins, particularly, were both very much men's men, you know, mm. um, and had this kind of dark, brooding energy to them both, it was it was that translated into a sort of. A, a sense of admiration and respect for for acting in in the area, um, and uh, but by the time I grew up, I was in some ways also far more influenced by the fact that there was um, on this Sandfields estate. Like I said, um, they had a, a new comprehensive school, Sandfields Comprehensive School. When it first opened in the sixties or whatever it was, the early seventies, um, it was it was very much a sort of flagship. And there was a man called Godfrey Evans. He still is. He's still with us. Um, but he uh, had gone off. He'd come from the area. He'd gone off to to train as a 
a drama teacher at Central uh, in in London, um, uh, which is also where French and Saunders trained uh, as teachers. <laughs> but he went off to train, and then and then he came back, and he could have become a theatre director himself, and I, I think he would have become a very successful theatre director. But he came back to Patelba, and he took up the post of, um, I think it was the head of English. And, and possibly drama, but I don't know if that even existed there. But anyway, he came back and he taught at this Sunfields Comprehensive School. And he ended up establishing the most progressive um, performance <laughs> uh, uh, sort of um, curriculum there, you know, uh, this the culture for performance, it, first of all, in the school itself. And then it spread throughout the whole county. He eventually became the county advisor in dance and drama. And he set up the, the county youth theatre, the county dance company. Catherine Zeta-Jones came through the county dance company. Russell T. Wow. Davis, myself, you know, various people came through the county youth theatre company. Um, he used to do um, arts uh, sort of collaborations between the different youth uh, arts groups um, where he did a, a production of the Oresteia with the youth orchestra, the youth dance company and the youth theatre. I mean, he built up this extraordinary infrastructure for youth arts in our county that I was a beneficiary of. So when I, I started doing school plays um, and then my drama teacher at um, a comprehensive school when I was about 12, 13 said, you should audition for the youth theatre. And so this man came along. I didn't know who he was at the time, Godfrey Evans. And I did some speech for him from, I don't know, you know, <laughs> Christmas Carol or whatever our play was that year. And uh, and I, I got accepted into the youth. Oh, in fact, I didn't get in the first time, but I got in the second time. <laughs> and, uh, and I got on and... Um, and there I was doing the insect play by some Czechoslovakian playwright. I mean, I had no idea. There were people, there were people in their early twenties doing this, and I was just awestruck. Uh, I remember Russell T. Davis, who was coming to the end of his time at the Youth Theatre then, so he was twenty-one, twenty-two, probably then, um, and one of the senior people. He ran the kind of. Um, the social side of things. So they would, you know, there'd be a social committee who would put on entertainment in the evenings after we'd finished rehearsing for the day. Um, and uh, he was the first man I ever saw in a dress because he, <laughs> he, he, drag, he dressed up in drag one night for something. I can't remember. I mean, my little mind was blown. Um, and, in the, and then the, that was the Christmas course because they would do a Christmas course and a summer course. That was the Christmas course. By the summer course, they were reviving a production of The Crucible and a production of Midsummer Night's Dream that they had that they had done before, and they were going to be taken to Denmark. There was going to be a tour of Denmark, and I got onto that course, but not as an actor. I got on as stage management, um, but I was part of that. And then a, a young lad um, who was playing uh, Snug the Joiner got ill and dropped out, and so I took over the part in Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, if I had not, if that boy had not got ill, I may never have become an actor because I was doing stage management at that point. Um, but anyway, I was part of this production. But I remember coming to Danakoid as part of the stage management, and we were told, right, you're going to watch a run-through of The Crucible in the rehearsal room. The actors had already been there for a week, and they'd sort of gone back over what they had done the year before. So they'd sort of, you know, they sort of still knew it. And they, so I sat in this rehearsal room, and it was just, you know, tape on the floor, and everyone was just in their rehearsal clothes, and they did a production of The Crucible. Now, I had never seen anything like this before i had not really seen plays i my family were into like amateur operatics and that kind of stuff so i'd been to theaters but i'd seen things like the gondoliers and uh, <laughs> you know brigadoon and that kind of thing i had not you seen thought, that's what i want to do with my life brigadoon. well yeah i mean yeah brigadoon um <laughs> but i know i enjoyed all that but you know it wasn't for me particularly. but anyway that was my experience of theater um and so there i found myself sitting cross-legged I, I can't remember there being anyone else in the room. It might have been like three or four of us, stage management, who were being, who were going to watch this run through, so we knew what we were going to work on. And um, and I watched the Crucible, and my brain exploded. Like I, 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 like I can look back at that moment and go, something happened in my brain. Like something, my consciousness expanded. I was wow. not ready for what I was about to see. I mean, it is a great play. It was a great production of this play. Um, the, the actors, they were, I mean, all the actors in it pretty much went on to become 
professional actors or, you know, in theater themselves. I mean, amazing people, including Russell T. Davis. Um, it, it was mind blowing. And it was right. You know, I wasn't even in the theater. I was sitting right next to it. And there was no nothing, nothing to distract. There was no costume, no lighting, nothing. It was just the, the raw play, this extraordinary play. Um, and and something just changed in me in that moment. And um, and I think, you know, a path was sort of set at that point. But the, the point being, in a way, the, the larger point being that as I've got older, I've realized that the, 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 the path that I've been on and, and the life that I've had and the career that I've been able to have um, is all because of the work of other people, really. You know, it's not, you know, it's tempting. I think it's tempting for people to think, well, I... I, I did this myself. It's my talent and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I've become increasingly aware that that is, that is not the case. Obviously, talent plays a part in it and hard work and dedication and commitment and all that kind of stuff. But the opportunities that I had, you know, I've watched them all disappear as well. Yeah. You know, first of all, my, my school um, stopped doing drama as a subject. Then, you know, school plays weren't happening. Then the school closed down. I was the last year to get a grant to go to drama school. Um, uh, uh, you know, then my youth theater's funding stopped, you know, all the things that came together to allow me to get to where I was going to get to, um, I realized, you know, were becoming harder and harder for people. And, and, you know, it was in some ways I, I, I was already in a more advantaged position because at least my family were kind of into it. You know, I, I, I realized later on when I got to drama school that there were people who, whose families just were not supportive at all of what they were doing. Um, so at least I had that advantage. But you think about kids in in areas, you know, where I now live again, in the communities in South Wales or wherever it might be, who have got no concept that there might be a place for them within the arts. You know, no concept of it, um, mm. let alone a pathway to get there. Um, and and that, so I've become more and more aware of that, really, that there was a real confluence of of opportunities for me, but based on the commitment and dedication and hard work and support of, of a lot of people. So I, I've, I've become more and more aware of that and more um, and feel more of a responsibility and a desire to try and do what I can to, to create those pathways for people or be a part of, of, of making sure that there are opportunity for, there are opportunities for, for young people. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, you can, you can just hear the profound impact that had on you and, the fact that you, you you just want that for everyone, you know, every kid to have that opportunity um, mm. in whatever context. I just, yeah, I think it's really moving. Well, and, and of course, and also, of course, it, it's, it helps us all. You know, there was a time, you remember, you know, the, the whole point of, and it, uh, one of the plays that I thought about picking for this was Look Back in Anger, which I've done a couple of times. And, you know, the, the sort of, the fact that that was a watershed moment that, you know, mm. around that period of time with, in the theatre, we'd look back in anger and on film with, you know, uh, Billy Liar and, and Loneliness Long Distance Runner Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. These This sort of watershed moment where we suddenly started to hear working class voices or, or, or stories of people coming from regions, the regions, <laughs> as they were called, um, and rather than the same sort of stories by the same sort of people about the same sort of class. Mm. Um, and and that, that sort of explosion of culture that happened, it enriched us as, mm. as, a, as a culture and as a, as a society. If we only hear stories from of certain parts of our country we are the lesser for it you know we are diminished if we 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 have to make sure that there is access to people from all walks of life all colors all sexualities all religions all economic socioeconomic backgrounds it has to be it has to be uh, a full representation of who we are otherwise we just you know, there's if we're overweighted in one area, then all that we can do is go round and round in circles. We will never progress. We will just be stuck. Um, and and it it can be taken for granted. I think that that explosion that happened around that time, you know, the mid fifties, mid to late fifties, that opened things up for so many people that had been kept out before then. Um, we can't take for granted that that happened and. And that's it forever. You know, mm. there is a there is a clawing back of that. There is always going to be a regressive pull to go back to how things were. You mm. know, it doesn't stay as it is. And and coming out of this this period of, of lockdown that we've been in and, and seeing the uh, discovering the the effects that it's going to have on us as a culture, we have to safeguard that as much as we possibly can, because there will be 
uh, an inevitable pull back to people only, be, you know, having access and a voice and a platform who can afford it um, or who are let in by the gatekeepers. And we can see at the moment, you know, how uh, how 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 much people are fighting back against that in, in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, at the moment, as we speak, the, you know, Black Lives Matter is, is, mm. is having such a huge effect on and there is a real moment and opportunity for change. Um, and I hope that we're able to to push that through. But we have to remember also that the things that we thought had already changed um, <laughs> may not have and may go back. So we have to we have to safeguard all that and, and keep pushing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I, you know, I guess that um, that's also a good point to move on to this amazing play that you've chosen today. Because mm. I think, you well, know... and the last play I ever did. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I, yeah, it, 2011. Of course it is was the year I did The Passion in Patalbert. I did two theatre projects that year, The Passion and Hamlet. And it's hard it's hard to know what to do after that. <laughs> <laughs> you have done um, Christ and I mean, Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, genuinely, those those two experiences. I mean, The Passion, you know, when I when I talk about when I just, you know, say the very basics of what The Passion was about and and how it worked and what it was, people are like, "Oh my god, that sounds extraordinary." You know, so it's sort of obvious that that would have a big impact. But that same year, I did Hamlet, and it had you know as big an impact on me in all for, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and it has been very difficult to, um, you know, it's no coincidence that I haven't done any theatre since then. It's it it is quite difficult to know what would be as uh, as stimulating and as challenging and and as inspiring as that, really. Yeah, I mean, oh, good lord. That is a that's a big old that's a big old double hit there for the, for the year of theatre. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What do you do next? Well, I mean, let, let's chat about Hamlet then. I mean, let's talk mm. about that. I mean, it's, re- it's I mean, it's an extraordinary play. I'm so happy you chose it. I've sort of been waiting for someone to choose it um, mm. for this podcast series um, uh, because I love it so much. Um, and I suppose you know, in its sort of basic form, it, it's the story of the young prince of Denmark. His his father has died his mother has married his uncle he's then visited by the ghost um of his father who sort of says that foul play has happened here and um he was in fact murdered by his uncle um and that hamlet's job is now to revenge him uh, and then i suppose the play deals with you know how hamlet reacts to that sort of responsibility that charge from the ghost of his father and vacillates between doing it not doing it his own madness and and somehow from that very sort of quite simple, almost thrillery premise, uh, Shakespeare sort of encapsulates almost all of human experience. Um, but one of my favourite quotes of yours about it um, was that you seem to say that like whatever angle you come to this play from, it somehow responds to you as if it's almost alive, um, mm. almost a living organism. So underneath the plot, like what is this a play about for you from your perspective of it? <laughs> Big question. Well, something is something's rotten in the state of Denmark, Joe. <laughs> that is what it's about, isn't it? That's what's happening. Is it, I mean, there's going to be a lot of what I say that may sound like a cop out, but <laughs> but it but but how do you even approach this? I mean, at its most basic level, this is just the most interesting thing any human being has ever written. Mm. That's it. Oh, wow. I yeah. mean, I, you know, maybe. The world's scriptures come somewhere close, but essentially no one, no human being has ever written anything as interesting as this. Um, Brilliant. You know, the only person I've ever really read writing about it that comes, I guess, close to sort of uh, giving voice to sort of what I feel is, is the literary critic Harold Bloom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and he says things like, Hamlet as a character is sort of just put in the wrong play. It's like it's like someone has put a character in the wrong play, and he's like, "All right, whatever, I'll I'll do this then." But it's so so. It's funny because when you describe, you know, what the play's about in quotation marks, you sort of go, "Yeah, but it's not really about any of that, is it?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, "Yeah, all right," but it sort of could be anything in a way. I mean, it's it, uh, and yet not. You know, it's it's like, how do you even approach this 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 thing it's 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 sort of just absolutely extraordinary you know every production every director and actor and company who come to this play have to sort of decide well 
what, what are you, what, what version of this play are you going to do? When I did the production that I was involved in, I wanted the approach to the play to be as if the play was a new play. I wanted to get, my sense was that it was a play that had become just made safe by familiarity. But that over-familiarity is an illusion. It's, it's, it's not true. We don't know this play, or at least we have to be constantly woken up from it. Um, uh, woken up from the kind of the, the illusion of it. it, the reality of it is something very different to what we think it is, and and that was the attitude that I came at it with. And I and I became more and more interested by the psychological landscape of it, the the um, the the dream of Hamlet that this is a psychological landscape rather than an actual landscape. You know that 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 Hamlet might not be. Um, uh, representing to us exactly what is there, that we are seeing it through this mind, that that there and there is something rotten in it. You know, there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. The time is out of joint, but there is something rotting in Hamlet's brain, and and it is out of joint as well. And so, was that your way into the character? Then it was a sort of that there's something in his psyche, there's something subconscious, there's something buried inside of him that is going to claim him over the course of this play. And yes. therefore claim I mean, the that, world of the play in a way. Exactly, yes. That was definitely the way. The other thing that, the other moat in my mind's eye, as I was sort of, you know, first starting to work on it, was like, I don't get what's going on between him and his dad. Mm. Why is the cleverest man ever, <laughs> when he describes his father, describes him in the most two-dimensional way you possibly could? Oh, he was just great. <laughs> I mean, clearly, clearly a man who has nothing in common with him. You know, this this is a guy who went off just, you know, was never happier than he was off killing Polacks, as he <laughs> describes, you know. Like, he, he, he was just a brute. And and Hamlet is nothing, you know, we get a sense when he, it's one of the most touching moments in the play is when, when he comes back from sea, from his 40 days and 40 nights at sea or whatever, he um he goes through the graveyard and, you know, the grave, the grave digger has this skull and says that it's Yorick's skull. And Hamlet, uh, uh, we through doing the math, we realised that um, that Yorick was the the court jester at Elsinore, um, and died when Hamlet was seven, um, and uh, and and he talks about Yorick in a way that he talks about nobody else in the play. I mean, when he describes his father, he talks about him in in one particular way, and he's very positive about his father, but it's in a very kind of inauthentic, superficial, surface way. His mother, we just see just so much anger and mm. kind of just really ugly um, feelings come out towards his mother. With Yorick, it, it, it's very difficult to to um, to uh, avoid thinking that Yorick was who he loved. I mean, you, you can see this, this man full of wit. You know, Hamlet is one of the wittiest, the, the, the funniest people in all of literature, of any character ever. And, and he was kind of raised, it seems, by this jester. By this guy who was full of wordplay and and you know he talks about how he kissed his lips a thousand times he used to have him on his shoulders there's just such an intimacy an easy intimacy with this man uh with the, with Yorick um and yet his father is so far away from that so you st you know you start I started to think well why why does he have this way of talking about his father and it reminded me of um uh, uh of listening I'd listened to a a, a uh, a man talk about his uh, his father who had abused him, and uh, he had been abused for many years, and um, but he couldn't deal with it. It was you know that was uh, what had happened to him. He didn't, he couldn't contain. He couldn't hold consciously. Um, it became a vicious mole in mm. his nature. Um, and when he talked about his father, it was just a very sort of unemotional. Uh, positivity that he would talk about him as um, because the reality was just too dangerous you know the reality if he was to hold that he didn't have the, the 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 tools to be able to hold that in his consciousness it would destroy him it would annihilate him the fear would be wow. um, and there was something that just chimed to me about that now again this is this is this was my way in I am not saying that that is what Shakespeare intended or whatever but it was my way in um, and 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 what led me to think of, of there being that I felt the play supported this that the, the, the but you know anyone who comes to this play will find support <laughs> for whatever their theory <laughs> is but I I wanted I was aware that what we how we were approaching it was um, 
was quite radical and, and was certainly not going to be to everyone's taste. Um, <laughs> but I felt like it wasn't, I, I personally felt like we weren't forcing it. It was, it was supported by the text and it was allowing the play to speak in a way that, um, that was, um, that was challenging and disturbing and, and all the, all the qualities that I felt were there for real, that were the authentic qualities of this, of this extraordinary piece of writing were able to sort of come out through that. And that was, that was, how I began the process, and 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 that was what I, I what I wanted to lead me in in the exploration of it, um, and you know, and by the time <laughs> by the time we we got to the performance, um, you know, some people really responded to that, and some people really didn't. But I had learned from you know, like I said before about working on Harold Pinter's stuff, that that my job was to deliver the message. And uh, and what how people reacted to that was up to them. Well, I love, but I love the um, the energy of disruption in what you're talking about, uh, and in the like, make them feel whether they're happy or not happy about it isn't the point. It's like make them feel, make them have a visceral yeah. reaction, and because that's what mm. it is there to do, isn't it? In in a way, I think like like you talk about with this play, it's meant to bring up all the shit we're uncomfortable with, the stuff we don't yeah. want to look at so that we can do that in a slightly safer environment. So yeah. unleashing that I mean, it's in your performance is terrifying. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the context that the play was written in. I mean, I mean for Shakespeare personally, we know that he had a son mm. who was called Hamnet or mm. Hamlet because you know, names would be sort of spelt differently and change uh, back in those days. Um, he died when he was 11 um, uh, in 1596, we think. He was a twin. He had a twin sister called Judith. So you have this doubling going on, these twins, these Hamlet and Laertes, Hamlet and Fortinbras, Hamlet and Hamlet. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you've got, so you've got Hamlet and Judith. Hamlet dies when he's 11. Um, just a few years before we think the play was written. And then you've got Hamlet's father who dies in 1601. Mm -hmm. So Shakespeare is writing this play suffused with death in his own personal life. Both the past and the future are just full of annihilation. You know, there's the son and the father the one who comes after him, the one who went before him, both gone. He's stuck in this place in between. Um, uh, finding, and, and as reflected through Hamlet, you know, not knowing how to feel about it, how to express what he feels about it, not really knowing what's going on, covered, full of guilt, full of um, uh, uh, something festering, something wrong with him. You know, this, uh, and, and so when you start to look at the, the, the period of time that he's, that he's describing, or that he was writing in, just sort of came from a place that means that it's not a beautifully constructed play it's not it's not perfect in its form it's not neat and you know tidy in that way it's just coming from somewhere coming from his fucking spleen from his bowels from, you know from, <laughs> it's just coming out and it's raw and it's intense and it and it hits really deep primal things in an extraordinary way um and uh, you know when I, I when I was performing Hamlet, um, we were it was over the Christmas period. I remember we um, you know it was before Christmas and after Christmas at the Young Vic, and um, we had a, a little break. I think of just like a few days over Christmas, and whilst and when I came home to Wales for Christmas, I got very ill. I got like you know man flu, so you know how bad that is. <laughs> yeah, it was real. Um, but I got I got really ill and. Um, and when we came back, I was still really ill, and we weren't sure whether we were going to be able, whether I'd be able to be able to do the first performance back. And I said, um, I said, could you please announce to the audience beforehand that I'm I'm not well? So I, because I don't want people, you know, I just wanted people to know that <laughs> I didn't I didn't know if I was going to get through it. I mean, I was wow. throwing up backstage, and I just felt terrible. I was feverish. I was just I'm, I felt really rough. Um, and so we made an announcement anyway. Anyway, did the performance. And I think it was the best performance I did. <laughs> well, I mean, it's always hard to trust as an actor what you're supposed to perform. But I connected with the feverishness of the play in a way that I, that I you know, hadn't had such access to before. And I realized it is like a, this fever dream. 
it's it it it's of a it is of a man kind of just so close to death. I remember Muhammad Ali described fight, uh, fighting George Foreman. I think because it was like being in the waiting room for death. It it wow. was like it was you know it was like that. There was something so raw and 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 decaying and just wrong about it that it's sort of something you know. And and with the adrenaline of doing it, obviously, it I, I was able to connect to certain elements of it. But I, and and it is it is like a sort of fever dream, um, where it all just pours out. And and maybe that's its its dark heart. You know, the, there's that brilliant bit in with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern where Hamlet finally turns on them, where he does the thing about you know playing the pipe. Would you play me like a pipe and all that? And he says, "You would pluck out the heart of my mystery." such an amazing phrase and that's the thing many people have tried to pluck out the heart of hamlet's mystery and they never will it just cannot happen it just goes on and on and on it's a closed you know it's 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 there's no end to it and (laughs) and i think that might be because you know the 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 psyche that that vomited it out was just um was was not really in control of it in in some ways you know it just something was coming from somewhere um and and you go into it in a way you know at your peril that is extraordinary yeah i mean i'm sold i'm sold on the michael sheen version of <laughs> i mean that is just extraordinary such a privilege to hear you talk about it in that way and I think like I was guilty, you know, previous to this conversation, I'm guilty of ha- of it being a really safe play, like a play I've always admired, but I've admired for its skill and its profundity. Yeah. But hearing you talk, it just makes you want to go and read it again and look at all of its anger and its ugliness and its um, out of control anarchy. It's just yeah. it's great to hear. And um, mm. did you feel that? It's, it's interesting, obviously, in that performance where you were slightly fevered in a way, slightly mimicking Shakespeare potentially in the fact that you were slightly out of your own control a bit in terms of your body and your mind and what you were doing in that performance but for the rest of the run like performing it do you feel that energy like did did that did the play live like that in performance for you the moments when you feel like it's coming through you and it's unimpeded and both your interpretation and the production the context you've set up and uh, is just allowing it to come out and and that you're technically on top of it um, and you're getting out of the way and you know all of those things can happen <laughs> then those are that's magic when that happens and scary I mean in the context of this play I remember walking around whilst I was doing the production just walking around you know London in the day or whatever and knowing that I had all of Hamlet in my head <laughs> it was quite it was quite a thrilling but also quite scary feeling knowing that that was it was all in there because every time I've worked on Shakespeare so that my second job ever was Romeo and Juliet at the exchange in Manchester Um, and I also did Henry V for the RSC and then Hamlet and each time I've done it and I remember particularly with Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet the the feeling in rehearsals feeling like something's happening in my brain. Like I'm aware that things are changing in my brain. I'm aware that certain lines or ideas that are in the text are literally opening up new pathways in my brain. Like my consciousness is growing as a result of this. And of course, that's what we all, you know, we all believe that Mm. the art affects us and helps us grow and becomes, we become more self-aware, but to but it's like an accelerated version of it working on Shakespeare because these ideas, these things, these juxtaposition of words and images and ideas and concepts and arguments, they're all in these plays. And as I would say, Hamlet, I think, is the greatest of all these. Of course it's going to do that to you. I mean, I, I could feel it. Like you can feel your muscles growing by working out in a gym. You know, you can feel it happening. Mm. Your consciousness is growing and expanded by it there is there is no play like it and there is no character like it and it was and you can you could see it i mean bloom harold bloom talks about the idea that shakespeare was wrestling with this character this character was too much <laughs> and that the idea of playing around with the form of theater drawing attention to the theatricality a sort of brecht like i suppose um is is both artistically extraordinary and courageous and and just amazing but also at the same time it's an attempt to 
to control Hamlet. To you know, there's this consciousness that is that is growing exponentially in front of our eyes as we're watching it. And he and Shakespeare is having to somehow keep him contained within this play, and so he keeps going. It's a play. It's a play, everyone. <laughs> um, but you know that's that, and that expanding consciousness is if you're playing it and you have the lines in your head, you know, obviously it's going to work on you. Definitely. I mean, in some ways, it feels like the ultimate expression of that feeling you had watching that rehearsal and run through of the crucible mm. and that explosion in your brain feels like it found its sort of manifestation in this play and in this production. So it's like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there is definitely something in me that goes. I don't want to do anything else. Now. <laughs> no, yeah, I will. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Now I've described it. I don't it, want I'm to like, spoil it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I get yeah. why you haven't done another play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've got, I've got a silly Hamlet quiz, mm. um, which after you talking so deeply and profoundly about it, now feels utterly silly and stupid. <laughs> but maybe for fun, we'll do it. Please. It's only yes. five questions. Love a Shakespeare quiz. a bonus quiz. question. Okay, first question. Super silly. Uh, which famous Disney film was based Lion on Lion King. Smashed it. Love that movie. Not, <laughs> not a fan of the of the live action. I'm like, keep All it right. animated. I haven't seen that. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot lot of stuff that's based on on Hamlet and, and different Shakespeare plays, isn't there? That you you wouldn't think of. But yes, the Lion King is 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 the Hamlet. There's also a there's a version of Hamlet that's just about a dog. Have you ever heard of that? There's a novel. <laughs> no, I haven't, but I'm so into yeah. it. There's a novel where Hamlet where essentially it's the story of Hamlet, but through a dog's point of view. Amazing. I mean, yeah. that I'm into it. I'm going to hunt that down after mm. this. Yeah. Um, okay, great. So you're one for one so far. That's okay. pretty impressive. Um, okay, so which part is it believed that Shakespeare himself played in Hamlet when it's first performed at the Globe? Well, yes, fascinatingly, uh, uh, people believe that he played two parts potentially, but certainly the ghost, uh, Hamlet's father, which, of course, given that he did actually have a son called Hamlet who who died, Um uh, that's sort of interesting and it's potentially also played the player king as well i'm giving i'm going to give you a bonus point there <laughs> extraordinary answer okay cool two for two smashing this quiz um i hope whoever's listening at home you're two for two along with michael um okay here we go number three who was the first actor to ever play hamlet uh was it it was richard burbage wasn't it smashed it yeah he's three for three great can, can he be stopped <laughs> okay here we go wild card Hamlet is one of only two Shakespeare plays to have been translated into Klingon. What is the second one? Oh, wow. <laughs> As a major Klingon speaker, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Well, I mean, Hamlet is a kind of like, yeah, no brainer. But what would yeah. be the other one? Would it be something that is just, you know, is it is it... Is it something that is just considered the other great achievement of Shakespeare? So it could be King Lear. Or is it something that has some kind of pertinence to Klingons? <laughs> like, could it be, could it be, I mean, they're a warlike people. Could they, be, could it be Coriolanus or one of the history plays? I'm going to, I'm going to go with King Lear. Uh, amazing. Um, I think this. I think when you hear the title, uh, you'll say it's very pertinent to Klingon culture, mm. uh, which is much ado about nothing. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's funny. Oh dear, good lord. Okay, wow. and question number five: How many lines does Hamlet the character have? Um, is it fifteen hundred? I'm going to give you that point because it's fifteen hundred thirty. That is so right. close. There you go. That yeah. is extraordinary. Uh, yes, 1,500, uh, yeah. 1,530, okay. right, okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that is so close. Okay, yeah. so you're four points for five questions, just mm. if people are going along at home. Damn those Klingons! <laughs> Someone's going to have got that fourth point. Yeah. I'm going to give you a bonus question here. All right, okay. Okay, again, slightly wild card. Mm. Um, Hamlet is the second most filmed story in the world. What is the first most film story? Ooh. Ooh, that's a good question. It's a punchy one. And it's not, I, I'm a little surprised by the answer. I mean, there are a lot of Christmas carols out there. <laughs> but are there more than Hamlet? The fact that you laughed probably means it's not Christmas carol. Okay. I mean, oh, films... <laughs> I mean, what? Like, is it something religious? Is it? No, I don't think there are. Do you are. want a clue? Yes, give me a clue. 
Um, it's in the sort of um, fable fairy tale world. Oh. So you were on the light lines with religious, that sort of deeper, older storytelling tradition. Right. Sort of fable fairy tale, like a sort of a Cinderella or a, what would be what would be the most told Taylor's oldest time. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Oh, oh, I, I, oh, I don't know. I'm going to have to. Oh, I'm really looking forward to the answer, though. Go with your instinct on where you started with that one. That was okay. Um, so, what are the most? And this would be well. We'd have to think beyond, obviously, our own culture necessarily. So, what would be? <laughs> you've, you've got your, you've got your Cinderellas, and your Beauty and the Beasts, and uh, what have have Disney done one? Yes, and you've 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 got it already. You've said it. Oh, I've said it already. You've already come across it. Beauty and the Beast. Ah, it was Cinderella. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I couldn't believe it. The first one you said was "Hmm, maybe Cinderella's that one. It's a Cinderella story. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there you Um, go. Oh, God. Amazing. Well, Michael, look, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your insights. Absolutely it's a amazing. pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Such a privilege. Um, sending you all the love and hopefully we'll speak soon. Yes. Thank you so much. All the best. The amazing Michael Sheen there, everybody. What a brilliant story he has to tell. And I couldn't believe how passionately he was able to talk about Hamlet and how fresh he made the play feel. I, for one, will have to head back and read the play again now. Thank you again for supporting and tuning in. See you all next time. Go gently and go safely. The Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Elliott Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who supported us through this difficult time.